0: Our scripture passage today comes from Colossians chapter 1. I encourage you to open your Bibles or open the Bible app on your phone and turn with us to Colossians chapter 1. I will begin reading in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated. And hostile in mind at doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh. By his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. Please be seated.
1: I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is wonderful to be here this Lord's Day. It is wonderful to be here at College Church. I am so thankful for you as a congregation. I am thankful for uh, your pastors and uh, thankful for the impact of this church, not only here in the congregation, not only here at Wheaton, not only here in uh, Chicagoland but uh, I, I bring you good tidings of the fact that the ministry of this church reaches far further and uh, reaches our campus, and uh, it reaches all over the world. And for you and for that, I'm very, very thankful. It is our great honor to turn to God's Word, and our minds have been drawn and our ears have heard. First Corinthians, first, uh, this passage from Colossians that is such a hymn to Christ. It is he we proclaim. All the songs we've been singing this morning are about Jesus the Christ. The sweetest name we can say is the name of Jesus Christ. In this passage from the Apostle Paul from Colossians, what we have is what has often been described as a hymn. And some New Testament scholars have used that to say this is a this is a hymn that the apostle Paul is, is is bringing into this passage. I think there's there's no evidence that there's that this is anything other than the Holy Spirit giving to the apostle Paul as he's writing to the church at Colossae, giving him these words which take on a hymnic structure with, uh, as it were, three different stanzas about Christ preeminent in the cosmos and Christ preeminent in the church and Christ preeminent in our redemption and. It is sometimes a challenge to a preacher. My habit in titling a sermon, and there's a sense in which that's an artificial task. There, there's a sense in which I, I, I don't think Calvin would ever have entitled a sermon. So he would just say, This is First Corinthians 15 to 23, deal with it. But uh, I understand the need for a title, so I was asked for a title, and uh, I chose for the title the phrase from this passage, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. You've heard. But it's a tremendous challenge in this passage because given the way the Holy Spirit gave this passage through Paul to the church, there is not one phrase from this text which would not deserve, if not demand, to be the title. I'm so thankful to be here at a time when you are... Considering missions and evangelism, particularly the ministry of this church, not only here in this this location, in this city, but but all over the world, the question is, where then do you turn? It might be natural, you would think, to turn to a passage in which we are confronted by the direct command of Christ to go into the world and, and preach the gospel, to go into the world and make disciples. Uh, to be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. And, and that would make perfect sense, and it would be absolutely right. But we turn this morning to this passage concerning Christ to do exactly what the Apostle Paul here exhorts the Colossians, and thus all Christians to do, and that is to remain steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel we have heard. Now, I mentioned that it is as if this falls out into three stanzas, and they're they're quite natural. The preeminence of Christ in the cosmos, the preeminence of Christ in the church, the preeminence of Christ in our redemption. But first of all, the preeminence of Christ in the cosmos. Just notice these words. He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And let's, let's start at the end of that stanza and, and work backwards. I really liked school. I still like school. I'm president of school. I teach in a school. I like school. In high school, I took physics. I expected to like physics. I, uh, I was challenged by physics a- at two different levels. First of all, just the, the material, but secondly, the implications as a young Christian, just trying to think these things through. You know, there are, there are physicists trying to find intently a grand unifying theory of the universe trying to figure out what it is that actually holds all things together, because there are all these forces and energies, but what's behind each one of them? The, the logic is there's something, that, there's something behind that, and 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 I know those of you who are physicists this morning in this congregation, there's a great debate between the, the classic understanding of physics and quantum physics, and that's, a, that's all I'm going to say. It is as of yet an unresolved debate because the two theories appear to be in absolute conflict with one another, and a lot of physicists seem to believe in both. There are physicists seeking the singularity, this this theory of everything, and I can understand why that would be really helpful. If you could just, you could get beyond the theory of this and the theory of that, the theory of relativity and the theory of, get behind string theory, Google it. If we could get behind all those things, what's the theory of everything? And yet we have here in this passage revealed to us the theory of everything. The theory of everything is Christ. Some of you will remember back in the 20th century a book very influential among evangelicals written by a a, a British scholar, J.B. Phillips. The title of the book was Your God is Too Small. I don't think I've ever cited it in a sermon before because when I was growing up, everyone did. But if it's true that our, our God is too small in the sense of our understanding of God, this is what the theologians call the domestication of transcendence. We, we speak of God, but conceptually we kind of cut Him down to size. You see this in popular culture. Sadly, you see it in much popular devotion. But if it's true that our God is too small, it is certainly true that our Christ is too small, because this passage begins in this structure by telling us that it is Christ who made everything. And then notice the actual text here. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, that, that's very similar to what we heard this morning from Hebrews chapter 1. If you just remember that passage… The, the worship service began with it. It's so similar. We're told in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. So, they're very similar. He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. How do do atoms stay together? I I know physicists have an explanation for it, but they don't have an explanation for what's behind that, and then what's behind that, and what's behind that, and they're looking for it, and we have it. Why, Why do atoms and molecules hold together? Why does the cosmos exists. What explains its existence? What explains its continued existence? What explains its future? It's not a what, it's a who. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. he's, He's prior to creation, for by Him all things were created. And here we hear the prologue to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by Him. Hebrews, all. Colossians, all. John, all. There isn't a Particle, a subatomic entity that was not created by Christ. And that that passage in 1 John, the prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, points us back to the very first verse of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. His glory is in the entire cosmos. Why? Because by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth not only all things, but all things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So, so even the, even invisible powers that take, that take political form, all things were created through Him, but not only through Him, for Him. The prepositions are so important. Not only through Him, but for Him. Ponder for a moment. What does it mean for the entire cosmos and all that exists to have been created not just through Him, but for Him. For Him for what purpose? For Him in what sense? Well, again, we have the entire New Testament testimony. We had the anticipations of it throughout the Old Testament. John Calvin once said that uh, the important thing to understand in the doctrine of creation is that creation exists as the theater of God's glory for the drama of redemption. In, in other words, Christians can never go back to Genesis and say it's about stuff. We can never go back to Genesis and say even it, that it's about grand, glorious, cosmic stuff. We can never go back to Genesis and just say it's about God creating human beings in His image. We have to understand that everything that exists, exists for the preeminence of Christ to be displayed to the glory of the Father in the redemption of sinners. That's more radical than than most Christians even, I think, once or twice take into consideration. Everything that exists, not just everything here on planet Earth, not just everything in our galaxy, not just everything in the entire cosmos in terms of what we know, but what we don't know, what's visible and what's invisible, everything exists in order for the Father to receive glory in the Son through the redemption of sinners. That's so astounding. I think if our neighbors knew we actually believed that, they would think we're off. And His glory is in all these things. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is, this is what we theologians would say, he's ontologically prior to creation. And in him all things hold together. The grand unifying theory of the universe is Christ, who holds all things together by the power of his will. It is Christ, who was the Word, the Logos, through whom the world was made by the Father. To His glory it is the Son. And it's in His name that we are gathered here today. We are gathered here today in the name of the Christ who is preeminent over the entire cosmos, who is Lord of all. And His glory is in all these things, in in all of them. And we're drawn to it. We go to see his glory. We go to see the Grand Canyon. We go to see the mountains. We go to see a, a place we've never been before. We go to see the wonders of the world. We go to see the sea. We go to see because our eyes are drawn to these things. But we're those who know that our eyes are drawn to these things because ultimately we are drawn to Christ. We are, we are drawn as believers. We know this. All this natural revelation is to testify to the glory of God. The psalmist makes that so clear over and over again. It's hard for us to even keep this always in mind. My son, as an act of love for his father, I think, I know, every once in a while he sends me a dog video. We are told that under the conditions of COVID, there's been an explosion in the number of animal videos and in the amount of time Americans spend watching them. <laughs> I would like to think that in my theological maturity, I'm above that. <laughs> my son knows better, and it's, it's, a, it, it's like a cookie on the counter, you know, I don't have to watch that. I'm busy. I have things to do but it's entitled, Golden Retriever Meets Puppy for First Time. <laughs> it's only a minute and 57 seconds. Of course, the po- problem is now my, uh, my entire digital world thinks that's what I'm looking for, you know. <laughs> Every feed comes up, you know, duck platypus, whatever. It's a… <laughs> but, you know, I, 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 I fell for it. I, I, I succumbed. And uh, I watched the video, Golden Retriever Meets Puppy for the First Time. It's this big dog, dad. Little tiny puppy. They meet for the first time. Puppy's really tiny. Dog's really big. But you just watch something when this happens, and you watch the puppy's tail wag with excitement. He's not scared of this big dog. He he wants to know this big dog, the big dog, a little more restrained, mature, sophisticated. But then you see the father's tail begin to wag, and nose goes to nose, oh, you've seen it. If not, you will. (laughs) The question is why, why, And, and why at every level, why a dog? Whose idea was that? You know why? Why does a why does a father dog, insofar as they even know their fathers, I don't know. Why 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 does he care for this puppy? Why does this why is this puppy instantly drawn to him? And it's not just that why; it's the more obvious why. Why are we watching it? Why have twenty eight thousand human beings watched this? Because it doesn't work the other way, so far as we know. Dogs aren't going back and saying, "Look, we got human videos." You know, we're the important ones, but we're watching the dogs. But you know, we really do know why, because God's embedded His glory through Christ in all of creation, in things visible and invisible, in invisible things, in everything. We see the preeminence of Christ. Who draws greatest pleasure from those two canines? You think you do? You think they do? how's this? Christ does. But there, there are these stanzas here. And the next one is about the church, the preeminence of Christ in the church. It begins in verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The preeminence of Christ in the cosmos, and now the preeminence of Christ in the church. And notice the language. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the author of the body of the church. He is, look at the next phrase, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. This makes us think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Christ is the firstfruits in His resurrection of those who will follow Him, also resurrected. Christ is preeminent in the church by the power of His resurrection. And, of course, Paul also tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that because of Christ's obedience to the cross and the fact that the Father raised Him from the dead, He has now given Him the, the name of Lord, and one day we look forward to that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But where is that to happen right now? Right here. The Christ-saturated words of our worship. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent, for in Him, so we're back to in Him, in Him, not just for Him, not just by Him, not just through Him, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, like Hebrews, like John, he, he, it's not just that he was with God. He was God. As in Hebrews, similarly, he's the exact imprint of his nature. The Son. Here we are told, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to rule. All the fullness of God. Yes, all the fullness of God beyond our imagination. It's not beyond our doxology. It's revealed to us. We exult in it. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked His disciples those two questions. Who do they say that I am? Confusion. Then who do you say that I am? Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's right. But he only knows he's right because Jesus responds to him saying, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he declares the church, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ establishes the church. It is established on Himself and on His work. And here we are told it is through Him that we are reconciled. It is through Him that we now have peace by the blood of His cross. Now, in the third stanza, so to speak, we're going to see the preeminence of Christ in our redemption, but we can't explain the church without our redemption, because the church is made up of the people who are redeemed. And so we're going to have to speak about our redemption when we speak about the church. We're going to have to speak about the church when we speak about our redemption. But notice this is an ascending argument. This is what Christians sometimes don't know. This is an ascending argument. First the cosmos, then the church. What does that mean? I think a lot of Christians, thinking about the church, it seems like the church is a little thing in the big thing. The, the church is a, a, little, a little part here, a little thing here. And the cosmos is the great thing. It's, it's beyond our imagination, you know, measured in light years. Beyond. Beyond. But the Bible tells us that the church is not a little thing in the midst of a bigger thing, it's actually the big thing situated in a little thing. Because the supposedly big thing is going to pass away. That unified theory that explains why atoms and molecules hold together and all the rest, well, just remember, that won't last. At some point, those atoms will not hold themselves together. Heaven and earth will pass away. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. What's continuous? The church. What's secure? The church. You know, we, we, uh, we often as Christians say to each other, boy, we're living in interesting times. We're trying to find historical parallels. Why do, why, why, how do we explain how do we understand faithfulness in the midst of our time? And uh, I'm reminded of Augustine, that great theologian in the fourth century who said, you know, part of the problem for Christians is if we're not careful, even Christians begin to believe the lie. It comes down to this, and of course, Rome was the great empire, but even as Augustine was leading the church, it was a falling or about to fall empire. And Augustine said, here's the problem with Christians. We, we, we expect this problem in the world, but we should not find this problem among Christians. Christians confuse the passing thing for the coming thing and the coming thing for the passing thing. That's good for us to think about, isn't it? We, we, we tend to see the coming thing as the passing thing and the passing thing is the coming thing. The world sees empire as the big thing and the church as the passing thing whereas the Scripture is really, really clear. Jesus Christ is Lord and the church is the coming thing, and all the empires, all the principalities and powers, they're the passing thing. The third stanza is the preeminence of Christ in our redemption, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Notice the objectivity of this. It's it's not just that Christ showed us redemption. It's not just that Christ revealed to us salvation. He accomplished it. He, He reconciled us. And the language here is incredibly strong. In biblical theology, it's hard to come up with a stronger indictment of our situation than alienated We're separated from God. We're alienated, and it's by our own self-alienation. We are hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. I don't know how you greeted each other this morning as you came into worship. I have an idea, but uh, you could have greeted one another with the words, good to see you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We are the fellowship of the reconciled, and as one who is also once alienated deservedly and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, we are now reconciled in His body of flesh. That's what we're singing. But there's an order here, all all this in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. This redemption is so precious and you'll notice again it's an ascending, it's an ascending emphasis here. It all points to the cross. It points to Christ's atonement. It points to salvation, the salvation that comes to those who believe in Christ and repent of sins. The who of salvation is answered, the the how of salvation is answered, and uh, and the conditions. For the church made very clear here, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul. And that's the, the astounding thing. It was astounding to Paul more than to anyone else of which I, Paul, became a minister. I am so very thankful for this church's commitment to missions and evangelism, so thankful for your passion for the gospel, and evidence your passion for the gospel is, is evident. But, you know, that's all grounded in the steadfastness of this congregation. In that faith, your stability and steadfastness. And then the words I chose just to point us to this text not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. How do we know what gospel to preach? How do we know what gospel to take? How how are we grounded in assurance that Jesus saves? It is because we are not shifted from the hope of the gospel that we have heard, which has been announced to creation under heaven. Now our task is to take the gospel to those who haven't heard. It's been announced, but as Jesus said, it needs to be taken as a message presented to sinners in order that hearing they may believe and believing they may be saved. That's the very essence of evangelism. That's the very essence of mission. Where you find Christ's church. You find those who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but are now reconciled to God, telling others how they too can know that salvation in Christ, and taking the gospel where it is not heard and must be heard. But you'll notice the singularity here. We're back to that, the singularity. This good news this good news is good news because Christ saves in Christ alone. That, too, is what gives us such compulsion in our evangelism and missions. It's because Jesus saves, and only Jesus saves. We want others to know Jesus, and we want them to be able to sing with us In Christ alone our hope is found. Brothers and sisters, may you and we, may this church and may Christ's church to His glory remain steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, and by grace into which this church has been called as a ministry, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, how thankful we are for the clarity and power of this passage. Father, we pray that Your Holy Spirit, who inspired Paul to write these words, will take these words into our heart and conform us by Your Word to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, it will be to the glory of Christ alone. And we pray in the name of Christ alone. Amen.